God's tabernacle has always wanted to live within people. And so that's where the temple of God is the people as individuals and together. And so we don't want something that distracts from that. We don't want fancy buildings. We want people to be attracted to the, the life that we live that shows God's presence. Come, come, come eat with us. Come to our simple places and see what real joy and, and peace is like. So my message today is, is part two of the series I started back, I think it was back in February. Um, from the beginning, it was not so. Um, just a short series I'm going to do talking about how Christianity changed um, through some key turning points in history. The message today is, uh, the title of it is, is part two, the paradigm reversal. The first message that I had preached was establishing a paradigm uh, because I realized as I was thinking about sharing this message, I, I realized that unless somehow we understand what the starting position was, what being a follower of Jesus, being a disciple of Christ, a child of God was in the beginning, it's not going to make sense to talk about changes that were made because likely we aren't aware of the changes. And part of the purpose for this series was just in thinking about the things that, that we talk about a lot here, the preaching that's done here, and in my own discussions about the gospel and about church history and things like that. I've run into this question a lot that, well, shouldn't we be following people? What's the big deal about the early church? Shouldn't we be following Jesus and following the Word of God instead of following men, following history? Uh, what's the big deal about the early church? I think it's important to understand how things have changed. And so that's kind of what this series is to address is why the big deal about the early church? Why do we spend a lot of time reading and, and talking about what the early church taught? So just some introductory framework here to, to discuss the purpose of, of the message, particularly the talk this morning, and also uh, how we're going to think about and approach history. For one, this series, uh, let alone this talk this morning, is not intended to be a comprehensive history lesson. Um, there's, there's so much could be said, so much could be brought out, so much happened. Well, so I want to just uh, create some splashes of what, what happened in history, make you aware of some things that happened. But more the purpose of this is to connect the dots and help us to understand what happened through the stories and the events. Um, also, this is more than a history lesson, even probably more as my own personal testimony. I'm sharing some of the things that I've learned and have made a big difference to me in how I look at the Bible and Jesus' teachings after realizing some of the way things have changed over time, some of the, the twists and the, the destruction that happened to what Jesus started. So I'm more like a tour guide saying, come and see, come look what I found. So we want to talk more today about what happened than what happened. And that may sound like an oxymoron, but so not the events themselves so much as what they brought on. So just to make, to help us think about more recent things in our lives uh, where that happened. So we could look at uh, things like COVID-19, for example. It was a lot more than just a disease that swept the globe and many people died from it. Lots of things happened because of that that were much larger than that. The fear and the paranoia and the conspiracy theories. We have things like uh, for us as Anabaptist people um, having to wrestle through how are we going to relate to the government when the government makes laws, uh, gives out orders that maybe we don't feel like are legit. 
having to rethink some of how we do do church, how we do our meetings and things like that. Some of it's been good, some of it hasn't, or some of maybe I should say some of it's just been more difficult. It's also led to a lot of uh, online stuff. So there's a lot more, there's churches that never would have posted things on YouTube. Now are posting messages on YouTube. There's a lot more uh, online virtual meetings, people working from home, um, just a lot of things. There's a lot of people probably will wear masks the rest of their life because they're afraid of diseases. So it has done a whole lot more and a lot of things have happened. And, and who knows, I, I keep saying this to my students as, as we talked about this, as I taught my last year, the end of 2020, right at the beginning of all this. I wonder in, the, uh, in 40 years, what the textbooks are going to say about what all this led to and what all had happened. So just that's more what we wanna focus on here is what happened, the changes that it made the, uh, the implications and the platform that it has started us out on because of the changes that have happened in time and history. So we want to alert you to alert ourselves, alert you to the changes that have happened and spark your curiosity into learning more and, and understanding how, um, what has happened, what originally was and what has come out of those, how that changes your approach to following Jesus and to looking at the scriptures. Also, we, part of the goal here is to ground us against false teaching when we know that from the beginning it was not so. Um, this has made a huge difference for me on many things. I've heard many um, very, um, very well thought out and um, honorable discussions per trying to persuade somebody of the true exegesis or interpretation of a passage of Scripture. Um, but it's, it all is my interpretation versus yours and whose is the most accurate and the proper way to to approach it when if we know that from the beginning for the first couple hundred years the people who were following the apostles and their the the men who were raised and taught and trained by the apostles nobody understood it that way nobody practiced that and so therefore somewhere it was fabricated and so therefore it's it's false um, and that just lends an authority to to um, our, our beliefs and our practice uh, much more than just believing that my methods of interpretation, my hermeneutic is, is better than someone else's more accurate. Some, uh, some notes here are just about studying history in general and our attitude and our perspective on it. One thing we want to avoid is making heroes or villains out of people. So just because somebody did many good things doesn't mean everything they did was perfect. We're not going to try to make anybody into, you know, having a, walking around with a halo on their head. Um, and, and also on the other end, just because somebody did many, many bad things or many bad things came out of their choices doesn't mean they were, they were a demon, doesn't mean they were a, a villain. So we want to look at things and say, this is what happened, this is what they did, but not try to, it just seems that's a tendency to, to either everything was great about this person or else they were just no good. We, we want to be careful of that. And as, as part of that, uh, we want to approach these stories and the things that happened and the characters that, that lived it out. With, with humility and contrition. Humility being realizing that we don't understand what it was like to face that. Um, this morning, you guys talked about that in uh, Sunday school about church history, how we looking back, we can see things and we, don't have, we aren't living in the pressure of the moment like they were. And so we wanna, we wanna be humble in our, our critique of the things that happened there. And we want to have an attitude of contrition, being quick to acknowledge um, weakness and fault ourselves like Daniel did when he was by the river Kibar there and he prayed and he said we and our fathers have sinned um, he realized that he had the same things in that in him that caused 
his fathers, their ancestors, to behave in a way that brought God's judgment, that brought destruction, and, um, and that he needed to walk carefully and diligently so that he could live differently. So humility and contrition, as we look at the things that have happened, we don't want to be arrogant or think that we're better or, or have an attitude of scorn. So moving on from that, I want to ask a question here. Does the fish know he is wet? Um, this is really an important question because that's the environment the fish has grown up in all his life is, is water. And so he doesn't think of it. It's normal. It, it, it's not something that he's conscious of because he knows nothing different. Now, the cat knows that he's dry because he has been wet. And he's sitting there looking at the fish, wishing he could grab that thing, but he doesn't want to feel that feeling on his paw that uh, he is, he's felt before and is disgusting. And so in the same way, there's often things that we, we don't realize need to change or that there's a different way of thinking because we've never heard it. It's just the way everybody thinks. We've always been taught. We've always heard this. And so sometimes we need to be pulled out of the water or have somebody who's been outside to, to tell us, look, this is not the way it always was. There is something different. Um, similarly, building off of that idea is... Um, so people say, like I mentioned earlier, say, why, why the big deal about the early church? You know, shouldn't we just be focusing on Scripture? Shouldn't we be following Scripture and following Jesus, not people? Well, the problem is none of us are viewing Scripture without a bias. We all have a bias, a um, preconceived ideas or concepts about how something is to be understood or how things are connected. The question is, which one do we have and uh, how accurate is it? Uh, this this uh, meme here sort of uh, describes or depicts that to you. And, and don't take any of the names too seriously. I'm not meaning them as an attack on any particular speaker. I just copied this. It was sent to me. And I thought it made a good point um, how when we are looking through even more modern teachers that maybe we appreciate a lot, we don't realize that we are hearing other people that they have learned from, that they were taught by. And so when we listen to some of these speakers, we are still listening to Calvin and Augustine Gustin and um, others like that. So um, the question is, what glasses are you reading scripture through? And do the people who, uh, who are influencing you directly or indirectly, um, are they people who bear the fruit of leaders that, that you should follow? So hopefully today's talk, as well as some of the future ones, will, uh, will help, help us all to, to think more carefully and understand better um, how we can be equipped with glasses that help us to see and read the scriptures and follow Jesus in the way that the apostles and uh, their predecessors did, or their, uh, their followers did. So in review, uh, in the first message I sh shared on establishing a paradigm, and in that message we took a lot of time, basically the whole thing, and looked at all the places where Jesus says, this is how you know who is my follower. And we looked at the judgment scenes in the New Testament, and we noticed that all of them what, it, what is the bottom line measurement is the, by the way a person lives, if they're obedient to the simple teachings of Jesus. Um, even saying that miracles and signs and, and wonderful preaching doesn't cut it. Um, so building off of that, that was what was the measure of a person who was following Jesus, is if they were actually living like him, if they were living in obedience to his teachings. Again, in that message, we talked about that this is not a prideful thing. This is not about me being better than somebody else, um, me somehow working desperately to try to please a God who I can't be good enough for or I think I can't be good enough for. 
It's not a partial list of things that, well, I'm doing all these things, so therefore I feel like I'm good and I'm ignoring, you know, underneath I'm full of rottenness. We're not talking about those kind of things, but a simple uh, obedience out of a, a childlike heart of love and humility that looks up to dad and, and admires him and realizes I need to be taught, I need to be trained because I don't know how to live life. And therefore I, I simply and humbly follow him out of love, that kind of obedience. So a few notes here about early Christianity. We, there's so much we could talk about, we can't talk about it all, but just some things to, to, to color our, our scenery as we approach the story for today. Uh, Christianity was predominantly a, uh, accepted by the lower classes. Jesus even talks about that, that it was a gospel to the poor. And um, there were some of the aristocrats and even some of the, the uh, ruling families that were willing to make the sacrifice and, and leave their, their prosperity, their prestige in order to follow Jesus. But predominantly, it was the lower classes of people who, who had, knew they had needs and were willing to do what it took to, to give up and follow Jesus, take up the cross. Um, also, it was a very widespread acceptance um, to the point that our terms pagan and heathen originally didn't have anything to do with who you worshipped. Um, they simply referred to people who lived out in the sticks from the heath or the farmers out in the, in the villages. And so that infers that the rural inhabitants were the ones that were not exposed to Christianity, to the Bible and its teachings. And it was the people in the cities and the urban areas that were familiar with that. And many of them uh, became followers of Jesus. Also, Christianity was spoken of as a way by both the Christians and the pagans. It was understood that this wasn't some sort of theological ideas alone, but it was a way of life, a way to, to live, to change, to surrender to, and to follow Jesus' life and his teachings. It was a way. Also, the church was unified at this point. You were either part of the church who honored the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of his apostles, and were unified, or else you were a heretic, like the Gnostics, who um, believed some really weird stuff and didn't believe Jesus came in the flesh and believed that the natural world was, was, was evil and unredeemable, or else you were a pagan. So you were either a Christian or a heretic, or you were a, a, a heathen, a pagan. The term Catholic it was originally used to describe that, and it simply means universal, like, so all shared by all is one good way to do it. Um, I think Jude uses that term, the common salvation. Uh, it'd be a similar idea to Catholic, shared, one that's shared by all, all, all Christians. Uh, there weren't different denominations. Um, later on, there was the Roman Catholic Church. Um, that was, that's another term where the church began to structuralize and, and become involved in government and, and built many teachings and practices that were, were not according to what Jesus and the apostles taught. But that's different than the term Catholic as used, uh, for example, at the time of, of the church councils that we'll be looking at. Churches also were autonomous. In other words, each individual congregation governed itself. Um, the leaders would, would confer with others and get advice and things like that, but it was each church's responsibility to wrestle through how to live out Jesus' teachings and to preach and to spread that in their locality. And that's actually very important because then 
what is being what is happening in each group is something that each person and collectively as a group they are owning for themselves as their personal conviction and um, not something that's being imposed on them by some outside body and that's something i'm not going to spend a lot of time this morning on but that's something that changed drastically and was very detrimental through the church councils the loss of that personal local conviction heresy heresy in the first 300 years was mainly a practice or a school of thought that separated itself from the simple obedient faith handed down from Jesus by the apostles. Um, it was not predominantly just an idea. It, was a, it refers to a split, a, a division, and that was spoken against very pointedly and was, was treated with great seriousness by the apostles and by the, the church fathers when someone created a split or a division. Um, that was right up along with immorality and things like that. So heresy was, was a practice or a belief which led to practices that were not according to the simple teachings of Jesus passed on by the apostles. Gnosticism was a primary heresy during the time, um, which denied Jesus coming in a physical body and that our physical bodies and world can be holy, can be redeemed. Um, that's in a very, very small nutshell, but um, basically that's the effect of, of their beliefs. So some things that church leaders spoke and wrote on during this time period. A godly living. A lot of the early church fathers, the pre-Nicene fathers, the fathers before the church councils, uh, which began in 325, um, wrote a lot about how to live, practical advice about living out Jesus' teachings. Um, they condemned divisions. We talked about that just a little bit ago. Uh, divisions was was a very understood to be a very very wrong thing. It was it was uh, carnal. It was of the world. Many of them wrote defending doctrine handed down by the apostles that produced holy people. So replying and um, teaching against heresies, in addition to expounding the scriptures, defending the integrity of the Christian community, um, speaking to the the public and especially to to leaders in government. Um, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, and especially his, uh, one that stands out to me is his writing to Scapula, who was a Roman a governor, I believe, um, telling them that the Christian community are, is not this weird group of people who do these hideous practices at night and are against, the, they're trying to disunify the em empire and destroy it, but they actually are people who are trying to live upright lives and be productive citizens, actually in many ways taking care of the social needs that were being neglected by the Romans. And also defending Christianity's importance to the empire. So an, an extension of that is that we actually are helpers to the empire. We're actually the ones that empire unknowingly is relying on us through our prayers and through our taking care of the poor, taking care of the sick, adopting your orphans, um, teaching people to turn from cruelty and from, from uh, dishonesty and stealing and things like that. Another thing, trend that, that began to happen, though, especially as Christianity met the Greek world and many converts were from the, the Greek schools of thought, um, is this trend of, of uh, trying to understand everything and make God's word make sense to the carnal man. So there's this trend to defend the rationality of Christianity. In other words, this makes sense. It is logical and um, it is a, a viable life philosophy. 
And that has its strengths and its weaknesses. It is the only way of living that really makes sense and solves the world's problems. But whenever we try to, to make everything make sense to us, we're going to end up with problems because everything we can see and know teaches us that there should be a lot that will never make sense to us. And, uh, and then in addition to that, trying to make it make sense to carnal, worldly men who have not tasted the things of God and are, are full of their own way, um, Paul says that the carnal mind is, is enmity against God. They're, they're opposites. They're pulling in opposite directions. And so there's, they can't get their head inside of God's way. It's not going to make sense. So we should expect to see that kind of stuff um, not making sense to the world around us. And so this was a trend that was rather detrimental to the church in some ways because people began to rely on human wisdom, human rationale, and begin to try to explain things that we can't explain. And then they're teaching that as doctrine. Um, Origen's first principles is, is kind of a poster child of, of this trend. Um, Origen was a very godly man as far as his life and his behavior. He was a very intelligent man. And he really began to delve into this thing of trying to answer things, trying to explain things, rationalize them out that scripture was silent on. Um, things like, for example, where our souls come from, when are they created, and, and the Bible's silent on it. It's something we don't need to know. Probably, if God would explain it to us, it wouldn't make any sense. And so, um, but he began, he wrote a whole book hashing out details like that and, and, um, and teaching them then for doctrine. And it began to trend of relying on human wisdom and human rationale and that things need to make sense to us. Um, everything needs to make sense with us. To us, maybe I should say. Some implications of this are, it was one that the uneducated are missing out on a lot of biblical truth. So the kingdom of God is really not for the simple, but for the wise and prudent, the people who can understand and rationalize and figure everything out. Um, and uh, the people who can't do that are missing out on the majority of the good things of God. Um, and then also teaching as doctrine rationalizations on topics scripture is silent on, things that uh, the Bible doesn't spell out, and then setting them up and teaching them as doctrines on equal importance with, with uh, clear scripture. And then this whole thing of, of relying on human rationale rather than simple directives is fascinating, and it becomes a distraction when people sit down and, and philosophize and rationalize out and explain these things um, it's fascinating to those who are less educated, and it creates a distraction um, and, an, and an awe on that that detracts from simple obedience to Jesus and his teachings that um, became a trend that was detrimental and led to some of the, the things that we're going to see later on. Became sort of a battering ram, uh, as I have there at the top of the slide, that began to hammer away at the foundation, the paradigm of that, the point of Jesus coming was simple, loving obedience, change our, our, that, the way we actually live. Another thing we can't talk about the early church without is, is persecution, because it was something that was almost always going on somewhere in the empire. Sometimes it was empire-wide. Mostly it was local and sporadic. Um, some examples of that that were not by the emperor were the persecution that arose about Stephen, where Saul is persecuting the church and people are fleeing. Uh, the uproar at Ephesus, where the gospel message was destroying the business of the silversmiths making images to Diana, the tourist attraction there. 
Um, at, at Philippi, you have the, uh, the demon that was cast out of the fortune-telling girl, and so the men were upset because they lost all the money they were making from her, and so there was persecution. Much of the persecution did not necessarily mean include martyrdom, but maybe imprisonment or being beaten, um, harassment, um, being banished, or your property being confiscated, things like that, that would wear people out and make life very difficult aside from being killed. There were imperial persecutions where the, the emperor decreed that this sect was, was not to be tolerated and was to be done away with. Uh, here's a list of some of them here. You can see there's time gaps between them. Um, the last one, the, the biggest and worst one was probably the persecution started by Diocletian and um, continued by Galerius until his, his death. So that sort of brings us up to Constantine because Constantine is a pivotal figure in so many ways. He changed so much of history. So he uh, ascended to power and part of the empire um, right following the death of Galerius. Um, there's his likeness. That's a statue in Britain, I believe, um, commemorating one of his conquests. And um, so he is in power. The, the, the Roman Empire at that point was split into a tetrarchy or four districts that were governed by uh, two Caesars and two Augusta, Augustuses or Augusti. And Constantine was ruler over this portion. And uh, so we're mainly going to talk about Constantine and Maxentius because that's where the conflict happened. That was the main turning point here. Um, some other things, there were intrigues where other emperors were done away with and things like that. And Constantine did end up having full control of the empire. But uh, Maxentius was a usurper. He rose up because he wasn't happy about how he got overlooked in rulers being set up. And he forcibly took over the section there you see in red. And Constantine was not in favor of that. There's lots of things, ideas about constant motives and whatever. A lot of it was power. Maybe some of it was that he was a... Uh, a man of the people and wanted freedom and prosperity for Rome, especially if his name was attached to it. And so he begins to say, so assembles an army and, and heads towards Rome and defeats Maxentius in several battles. And then he is coming up to the city of Rome itself, which is Maxentius's last stronghold. And he is getting ready for a battle. It's going to be a battle the next day. One of them is going to die, right? This is the last stop. And one of them is going gonna, is gonna to die, and the other one is going to be the ruler of all of that half of the Roman Empire now. And so there's story from several different uh, sources. We don't know exactly what happened, but he saw some sort of a vision. Um, some say it was in the sky, some say it was night, maybe it was both. But he saw this vision in the sky um, with a sign that had the first two letters of the Greek word uh, Christus or Christ and the words in that's in Greek there but it basically means in this sign you will conquer and we don't understand what it is I sort of like to think that maybe he did actually see something and God was giving him one last chance to conquer by suffering and serving to conquer in Jesus way rather than conquer with the sword and with power but anyways, he saw this thing and gave him this idea that he could, he could use that symbol and go and fa face the battle 
under the name of the Christian God and that that would give him victory. Here are some other uh, pictures from, of engravings and things like that where you see the two, the two letters. Um, this is still, this is the Greek word uh, Christos, and this is actually Russian still today. If you would read a Russian Bible and it would say Jesus Christ, it would say Jesus Christos. And that is still the first two letters of the Russian word because Russian got its alphabet from the Greek missionaries. Um, so it's, this word is kind of a type of sound, and then this is actually this, the R sound. So Christ or Christos. Um, so he put those, the sign told him to, to arrange those two letters like this and make a cross out of it. Not like today the Christian cross, the Greek cross of a, a vertical upright with a, with a horizontal cross beam on it. But uh, the symbol representing the first two letters of the, the name Christ. And, um, and so he made standards to carry in his army and had that painted on the shields of his soldiers and marched into battle at the Milvian Bridge. This is a picture of that location today um, at, in Rome. Of course, that bridge was not there at the time. Here's another artist's rendering of it. You see the soldiers with the, the, uh, the X and the P or the chai in the row on their shields there. And in this battle, um, Maxentius, the battle went badly and Maxentius fell into the river and drowned. And Constantine's army was victorious. And of course, he's exhilarated because he's alive and he's in sole power now. And he credits it to the Christian God because he painted the sign on his shields and carried the banner into battle and was successful. So the Christian God is his new favorite God among the pantheon of Rome. That's the way they would do. They would worship whatever gods they felt like would, would give them advantage. And so uh, he ends the persecution with the Edict of Toleration in, in Milan in 1313 and says, we resolve to grant both to the Christians and to all men freedom to follow the religion which they choose, so that whatever heavenly divinity exists may be favorably inclined to us and to all who live under our government. So he's very clear there about his, his motives in it was so that there would, the gods, whatever god was out there, would, would make his empire and his reign prosperous. And so we run into the second battering ram, and that's Constantine's reforms. So Constantine didn't just make freedom for Christianity, but it actually became a preferred religion. And he favored it because <laughs> the Christian God is giving him the empire and giving him glory and power and, and prosperity. So he wants to take care of that. So he actually begins to do favors for the Christians. And he builds beautiful buildings for them in place of the, the shops and remodeled buildings that they would have used as, as meeting places. Um, he gives special subsidies, so funds, pays their, their leaders, and um, gives special exemptions and tax breaks to Christians. And he promoted Christians to prominent positions in government, as his personal advisors even. This is actually from after one of the church councils. Um, I think for the sake of time, I'm going to read the whole thing here. Oh, maybe I will. Um, this is about a feast that he invited all the bishops to. About this time, he completed the 20th year of his reign, that's Constantine. On this occasion, public festivals were celebrated by the people of the provinces generally, but the emperor himself invited and feasted with those ministers of God whom he had reconciled, and thus offered, as it were, through them a suitable sacrifice to God. Not one of the bishops was wanting at the imperial banquet, 
the circumstances of which were splendid beyond description. Detachments of the bodyguard and other troops surrounded the entrance of the palace with drawn swords. And 30 years ago, they would have, these men would have been arrested and, and put to the sword, would have been killed. But now they proceed without fear into the innermost imperial apartments in which some were, in which some were the emperor's own companions at the table, while others reclined on couches arranged on either side. One might have thought that a picture of Christ's kingdom was thus shadowed forth and a dream rather than reality. That's uh, the, the uh, Bishop Eusebius of Caesarea's uh, history and talking about the event. And you see how this affected the people. They were exhausted from persecution and I don't know what all else played together, but they looked at this and they said, wow, this is wonderful. This is a good thing. And they began to think this is actually what God wants. Um, this feasting together and being under the favor of the emperor and a joining of forces is actually, this is a good thing. This is what Jesus wants to happen. So what happens here is Constantine, as a carnal man who's looking out for the empire to be orderly and, and powerful as man thinks, is bringing those ideas to the church and funding and building buildings and giving suggestions that are his, his way and his idea. And some of what backed it up is this sign. So he sees this sign and it helps him conquer. So therefore God must be with him, right? Well, we really need to keep these kind of things clear. Or we'll, we'll be end up doing a lot of things that are against clear teachings of Jesus. Because Paul says, um, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. In other words, it's not even good news. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And he's referring, at least in part, to the Sermon on the Mount as the gospel, the, the new laws for the new kingdom and the new reign. So this is really important to be grounded in. It doesn't matter how wonderful something looks or how much good comes out of it. If it doesn't follow the clear teachings of Jesus, it's not Jesus' way. There's a story... Um, in the Old Testament about a man of God who went to Bethel and to make a prophecy and he was explicitly told Don't stay there. Don't eat come straight home And on his way home another old prophet from the city somehow Wakes up and he says ah, you know, he was a good guy uh, I wish I was like him. I think that's really sort of what happened He he admired the prophets boldness and wished he had been that way and he and he sends messengers after him and tells him, come back, come back. The Lord came to me and said, you're actually supposed to come back and eat with me. And if you know the story, it ends up the, the original man of God goes back home and he is eaten by a lion on the way because he went against the word of the Lord. Because he, 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 God's not going to come and tell you to do the exact opposite of what he just told you to do. So it's really important that we keep our lenses clear on those things. It doesn't matter what kind of signs and wonders and eloquence or those kind of things that, that come from a person. If they're not teaching us to follow Jesus in a simple, practical way, then it's, uh, we need to be aware of them. Again, Jesus says, it's not the people who say, Lord, Lord, or even have cast out devils and prophesied and work miracles in his name. Jesus says that he's going to tell those people, um, I never knew you. Depart from me. You are lawbreakers. You're enemies of my kingdom. This is one that we hear often, but the God did so much good through it, or there's a lot of good came from it. 
And that's good. But the fact is, God does good from everything. God even uses Satan in his efforts to bring good. Look at the book of Job. Um, so just because there's good things come from it doesn't mean that we follow it and listen to it and allow it to change our, our lives. Was it Constantine's fault that he was a bad influence on the church? I don't think so, necessarily. Um, he didn't know any better. He was just practicing pagan um, piety as he understood it. Worshipping the gods and trying to do things to please them to, um, to, to win their favor. But what if the church would have said, instead of just welcoming all this stuff, would have said, thank you, Constantine. We really appreciate you. You have been a tremendous blessing to, to us. But Jesus said, let me, let me read you Stephen's message from Acts chapter 7, where he explains to us that God's tabernacle has always wanted to live within people. And so that's where the temple of God is, the people as individuals and together. And so we don't want something that distracts from that. We don't want fancy buildings. We want people to be attracted to the, the life that we live that shows God's presence. Come, come, come eat with us. Come to our simple places and see what real joy and, and peace is like. Um, and, and things like that. If they would have taught Constantine Jesus' way instead of being swayed. Again, we want to be careful not to be critical. We weren't there. We don't know what it's like. Uh, the, council, the church council, some of the bishops who came there were missing limbs from persecution, uh, from being tortured. So we want to be careful not to be judgmental, but we do want to learn from it. And we want to learn that things changed in the platform that we have been handed as Western Christianity is not, not looking clearly at, at doctrine and at the scriptures. The church councils then, the two battering rams synchronized. So we have this problem of, of men wanting to rationalize and figure every, everything out on their own and getting out on some limbs that don't agree with scripture. And we have Constantine, who is obviously a carnal man using his methods uh, as, a, as a skillful and a good leader, coming together at the church councils and, and dealing some real fatal blows to the last vestiges of a, of a, um, a godly kingdom life, a Christ-like life. So the Arian controversy was one of the big issues that came up. And this was a controversy over the Trinity. Was Jesus created or was he the same as the Father? And we're not going to talk about all that this morning. Um, but Constantine values the success of Christianity because he believes the success of his empire depends on it. So he jumps in here. He doesn't want to see the church fall apart and the Christian God become displeased with them. And he loses his help in the empire. So he jumps in to try to help solve the whole thing. Um, he, he first contacts Husius, who was a bishop that he, he highly um, appreciated. And Husius gave the advice that these guys should really just drop it, that it was wrong to propose those kind of questions, to feel like we need to figure it out, and then to get into a, dis a, a meaningful discussion about trying to, trying to say which way it was. Um, they're not required by the authority of any law. They didn't affect um, whether or not a person was following Jesus' teachings, and they actually uh, led to some very bad things. Well, they didn't listen. They kept on. Pardon? Could you read that thing? The whole thing? Sure. Yeah. He, he replied that it was wrong in the first instance to propose such questions as these. In other words, about the substance of Christ. Was he you know, the same as the Father? Was he created or some hybrid of or a third thing, or to reply to them when propounded. 
For those points of discussion are not required by the authority of any law. Rather, they are suggested by the contentious spirit that is fostered by misused free time. That's not very flattering. Uh, in other words, you should be busy doing what you know instead of wasting your time trying to figure out what you don't know. Um, even though they may be intended merely as an intellectual exercise. No, we're just asking it because we're wondering about it. They certainly should be confined to the region of our own thoughts and not hastily produced in the popular assemblies, nor unadvisedly entrusted to the general ear. So we should keep them private and not go around touting them as this is probably the way it is. For how very few there are who are able either to accurately comprehend or to adequately explain subjects so sublime and obscure in their nature. Thank you. Thank you. It was, it was good to read that too, I think. Constantine calls these meetings and gets all, as many bishops as he can to come together for a meeting to figure this out. He pays the traveling expenses and hosts the meetings. He presides at the meeting, so he's the moderator and guides the discussions and things like that. Um, some of the other church councils, some of the things it says about what he experienced was not godly at all. The, they sit there and argue and are accusing each other, and he's the one who actually say, hey guys, whoa, 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 let's get along here. Um, and he's the one who suggests a solution. We'll look at that in just a little bit. He words the creeds, uh, adds wording to the creed, and then he enforces the decision. He meets out a penalty, at first banishment, and then death for someone who, who, um, who harbors the writings of Arius. That's not Jesus' way at all. But nobody stood up to him about this. They let it, let it roll and, and benefited by it. This is... Uh, from the writings of Eusebius about it. And so he says, on this faith being publicly set forth by us, in other words, this agreement about what we believe about the Trinity, no room for contradiction appeared, but our most pious emperor, which is Constantine, before anyone else testified that it comprised most orthodox statements. So we have this heathen emperor who appreciated and learned a lot and admired a lot about Christianity, but never surrendered himself to the Lordship of Christ and, and patterned his life after Jesus' teachings. He still participated in war and many of the scandals and intrigues of the, uh, that were normal among the Roman emperors. And um, he was baptized on his deathbed, but there's never any sort of clear manifestation that he adopted or surrendered his, himself to, the, to Christ's lordship and, and, and lived in obedience. Um, so he said that they were made up of orthodox statements. In other words, it was right or straight doctrine, straight um, doctrine, ortho, like an orthodontist, straightens your teeth. So orthodoxy is, is straight doctrine. He confessed, moreover, that such were his own sentiments. In other words, he thought, yeah, that's, that's what he would say. And he advised all present to agree to it and to subscribe its articles and to assent to them with the intention, with the insertion of the single word, so he says, this is all good. I like this. I think everybody should agree with this, but you should, you should add this yet. Yeah, this would really just be the, the it would really top it off and, and just make it perfect. And that was one in substance or homoousian. Uh, it's there in Greek after that. And such were the theological remarks of our most wise and most religious emperor. But they, with a view to the addition of one in substance, drew up the following formula, which we know as the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in, in one Lord Jesus Christ, 
the Son of God, begotten of the Father, only begotten, that is, from the substance of the Father. In other words, homoousia. We're reading it in English. They wrote it in Greek. God from God, light from light, very God from very God, begotten, not made, one in substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, both things in heaven and things in earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was made flesh and made man, was made man, suffered and rose again the third day, ascended into heaven and cometh to judge the quick and the dead and in the Holy Ghost. But those who say once he was not and before his generation he was not and he came to be from nothing or those who pretend that the Son of God is of other substance, other subsistence or substance or created or alterable or mutable, the Catholic Church anathematizes or curses. So now they have it all figured out. In many ways, what they say there, I think we would all agree is, is, is what we would understand. And most Christians, was, it was what was handed down by the apostles. But there's a problem here. Something happened here. Actually, quite a few things. But one is, this, by inserting this word homoousian in there, and now that was how you decided who was a, a, an Orthodox Christian, was if they believed that Jesus was homoousia, homoousian with the Father of the same substance. That became what decided who was a Christian now, was their ideas. And it actually began to be overlooked the rest of the way they lived. And so in the years following, we have people, we have people become very lazy and um, living in luxury and getting involved in the, the upper class Roman lifestyle. You have people, um, mobs fighting and even killing people. You have, um, you have soldiers, Christians, quote, going to war, which even at the time of Nicaea, it was agreed that if someone would join, a Christian would join the military, that he would be excommunicated and would not be able, even if he repented, he would be put on proving, so to speak, for 10 years. They, they considered it that bad of treason. Within 100 years of Nicaea, there were armies of Christians going out to fight. Um, because man's idea was held up as the standard and what defined who was a Christian rather than simple obedience to Jesus. It gave the idea that Scripture is not enough, and we need our ideas to actually improve on Scripture. Man's definition was elevated above Scripture, and the measure of the follower of Jesus becomes mental assent to an idea rather than a humble, loving obedience to Jesus. As if that wasn't bad enough, another thing that arose out of this coming up with, with a man-made term that was elevated to the level of Scripture and used to evaluate a person being a Christian or not um, was that even if a person was living like Jesus, just like Jesus, a completely godly example, if they did not embrace the term homoousian to describe the nature of the Son, he was condemned as a heretic. A completely a godly, as godly as, as Jesus himself even. I'm not saying that anybody was, but a completely godly person, that was all of no, of no credit um, un unless they used this man-made term to talk about their ideas that man had figured out they knew all how this all worked. Um, unless they acknowledged that, they were condemned as a heretic. And there actually were from the Council of Nicaea, there were a couple of church leaders who did not sign off on the statements from that church council, some of them because they just simply didn't agree with the curse that came with it. Maybe they even agreed with the, the terminology, but they didn't agree with cursing people, anathematizing people on that basis, and they were banished. 
So this really, um, really just turned upside down the whole paradigm and the whole purpose and identity of what a Christian was, of someone who yielded to Christ out of humble, um, loving surrender and lived in simple obedience and became a person that was like Jesus. It completely upended the paradigm. The fruit that came out of that, I already talked a little bit about that. Um, the disposal of obedience by clever explanation. So now that we have used man's ideas and man's rationale, and that actually improves on and helps us better understand what being a Christian is, it actually begins to be used to dismiss simple obedience. So we come up with detailed explanations, and we'll look at some of those bearing fruit about 100 years later in Constant, or, uh, Augustine. Um, an obsession with external pizzazz. Pizzazz, how do you say that? Um, pizzazz, yeah, that's what I thought. But um, so just things that are, oh wow, you know. So like Constantine's vision and and supposed miracles from the bodies of saints, you know, and you know, one man cut a piece of cloth and blood flowed from it. So oh wow, that's powerful. And and so we go to that and we get healed physically from it. And 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 then these people in the meantime are living ungodly lives, not experience the the, the spiritual healing that Jesus really came to bring. Um, lots of that kind of stuff, veneration of the saints and um, some of that kind of stuff began to grow. Uh, a focus on ideas rather than behavior. And this whole idea of reaction, creating a doctrine in reaction to a false doctrine that actually created something worse. Uh, Brother David calls that Newton's law of theology. Building on Newton's cradle, you know, where you take the two balls and you pull them out and for every action there's an opposite and equal reaction so if you pull two out and hit they both go back and both bounce the same or if you pull one ball off and let it go one ball flies off the other and if you do two two go off um, and too often that's what happens then because we're not concerned about our behavior we can get we get vicious and we we we, we make strife and and envy and and get angry and react to a false doctrine and create our own to try to shore it up and we actually end up creating something that's worse just a sneak preview brother david's talked a lot about this in his messages was was martin luther later on reacted to the catholic the roman catholic doctrines that you could be baptized or take a wafer in communion and that alone regardless of your repentance would would make you right with god he reacts to that and says it's no nothing to do with our works it's by faith alone and many horrible things have come out of that when we use our own rationale rather than rather than in place of simple teachings of jesus and obeying them augustine we talked a little bit about him i'm just going to roll through really quick because again i just want you to realize there's some stuff out here to to learn about and um that has changed the way people have read scripture um, he is thought of as the greatest saint ever, but really in many ways he was, well, he was a very godly man. If you read some of his writings, he, he cries out for holiness and desires to change, but he was a man who was an incredibly smart man. He actually was a, a teacher, a professor of, of rhetoric or logical explanation of things. And he builds on the foundation that was set at Nicaea and in the church councils of getting together and rationalizing and, and trying to figure things out that the Bible isn't clear on and that don't affect and often contradict simple obedience to Jesus' teachings. He just followed that and built on it. And so he 
he begins to, a lot of his teachings then begin to tell us that everything is abstract and it has no physical demonstration. We'll look at an example of that later. But it's all about what's in your heart or it's about believing the right thing and it really doesn't matter how you live anymore. Um, he also develops the doctrines of predestination. And again, in reaction to um, uh, Pelagianism that taught that man could, you know, if you can be good for one hour, you can be good for a whole day. And if you can be good for a day, you can be good for a week. And that we can be good on ourselves or on our own. And he reacted the other way and said, there's nothing good about us. And we actually can't even choose to, to turn towards God. We can't even choose to repent. And so it's all something God does. And he destroys love, a, love, a loving response to Christ and obedience and free will that we can choose. We're not bound by some fate or our environment. We can choose to allow Jesus to change us. Um, he just develops ideas and teaching that destroys that, that uh, most Western Christians today build on. Um, he rationalizes the persecution of heretics, which now is not doctrine that teaches people to disobey Christ. But now heresy is ideas that are wrong. And you may actually be considered a good Christian if you have the right ideas and are a brawler. You're a, a person who's not a, not a, not, doesn't get along with your neighbors and, and, and cheats in business. And, but if you have the right ideas, then you're not a heretic. So even what heresy was changed. Um, he says this, It may be supposed that God could not authorize warfare, because in latter times it was said by the Lord Jesus Christ, I say unto you that you resist not evil, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the left also. However, you might think that Jesus said, no, don't go to war, don't fight. But really, the answer is, what is required here is not a bodily action, but an inward disposition. So you can go ahead and kill the, the, the barbarians or the other Christians that don't agree with you as long as you love them in your heart. And that's just completely turned out upside down what Jesus and the apostles taught, that if we love someone in our heart, it comes out in our actions and we're willing to suffer. Uh, it goes against the life of Jesus and how he lived and demonstrated us how to live. Um, he also rationalized persecution. This is a, a piece of his rationale, how he did this. Um, he uses a parable that Paul uses in Galatians and says that if the true church is the one that actually suffers persecution, not the one that inflicts it, like some people say, like we would believe in Jesus taught, let them ask the apostle what church Sarah typified when she inflicted persecution on her handmaid. So it says there that Sarah is a picture of the chosen seed and, and Hagar of the children of this world. Um, and then he builds from that and makes things out of it that Paul's not saying. And that actually goes against what Jesus taught. And he says, For the apostle declares that the free mother of us all, Sarah, the heavenly Jerusalem, which is the true church of God, was prefigured by that woman. In other words, Sarah was a picture of the true church who cruelly treated her handmaid. However, if we investigate the story further, we shall find that it was really the handmaid who persecuted Sarah by her haughtiness. Sarah merely imposed on her a proper discipline for her haughtiness. And so therefore, the church should persecute and punish those who do not adhere to their doctrines, make trouble for it. Completely against Jesus' teachings to be harmless and to do good, uh, to love our enemies and to bless them and to be joyful when we are persecuted. So what happened is exactly what Jesus said to the Pharisees. He said, you, 
why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition or your practice and your teaching that you say this is the way to do, your doctrine? For God commanded, saying, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me as a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your traditions. That's the punchline to it there. Um, because you're, you're worshiping me in vain because you're teaching for commandments, the doctrines of men that dismiss. They make God's commandments. They don't mean anything anymore. Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, it, I don't know why he even said it because the way a lot of Christians interpret it, it he wasted his time because he didn't mean anything that he said. And you actually have to understand, especially in and you can't just take them simply. Just a, quickly in reflection here, a few, a few lessons to take away from this. And again, I hope this more alerts you to that. There's some, some major things happening. The two battering rams working together, joining with the kingdom of this world and man's methods of ruling and solving problems, along with man's rationale and relying on that rather than the simple teachings of Jesus and obeying them. Those two really destroyed a life that was like Jesus. Um, one, sound doctrine is determined by the behavior it produces. We don't have to shoot ourselves in the heads or, or starve our intellect to death. But when we use our human reasoning and our logic, it must always agree with and strengthen the simple, clear teachings of Jesus. Otherwise, it is an enemy to us. Apostle Paul has many things to say about that. That is really an important thing to me. It's one thing I wrestled through and put some final nails in in my apologetics class this year at Soldier of the Cross. Um, is that everything we see in the world around us should tell us that there should be a whole lot we don't understand. And we need to learn to be okay with that. And always our ideas and our explanations should reinforce the simple, clear teachings of Jesus. Um, faith without works is dead. So our ideas and our, our, the things we figure out in our explanations, unless they produce the fruit that Jesus talked about, they are they're actually harmful. Beware of reactions. So reacting and causing a greater error. Obedience precedes understanding. This is really important to me as well, because often as we say, God, I don't understand, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to follow you. Then later on, we do understand because through obedience, we develop the mind of Christ and we begin to see things from his way. So obedience precedes understanding. Enjoy the freedom of saying, I don't know, but this is what I do know. Um, that's a meaningful part of my own journey. And I actually feel like that's a good groundwork. Often in school, they ask questions and say, I don't know, but this is what I do know. What's heaven going to be like? I don't know, but this is what I do know. Um, a lot of things like that. Um, that. That's so freeing. I don't have to figure it out. I'm a child, and I know that if I follow my father, it's going to be good. Remember that Jesus said this, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Often it is the simple people who get the heart of Jesus in his way. And some of us that are more intellectual, it's a lot harder. We have to struggle more. We have more to give up. The kingdoms of this world are rivals to the kingdom of God because their goals are often opposites. So man's way of organizing and ruling and, and creating a good earth, often the goals are opposites, what they want. 
in the way of achieving the goals are in rebellion to God's ways. And that's what happened with Constantine. The church began to open themselves to man's ways of handling things, man's ways of solving problems, man's ways of getting converts. And it, um, it's actually a rival because it's, it's a rebellion against God's way. We don't want to do it God's way. And, um, and we're going to come up with our own way. Lots, a whole message could be preached just on that. Remember that Jesus says, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So whatever we believe, whatever we figure out, it must be anchored and it must be proven by a simple practical obedience to Jesus. Uh, the teachings of Jesus himself and what he taught through his apostles. Many of you have read these books. I really think every Christian with a normal mind that can make it through eight grades of school should read those books. And I kind of recommend them in that order, simply because the first one kind of lays more of a foundation and the other two build on it. Um, this, these go into detail much better and much more thoroughly than what I was able to this morning. But to hopefully help, help us be able to come aware that what we often see around us and what we're influenced by, maybe our own take on being a Christian, is not what Jesus started. And um, some helpful ways that we can repent and allow Jesus to change us so that the kingdom can come and Jesus' will can be done just like it is in heaven. Let's bow and pray. Thank you, God, for your goodness in reaching out to us and that Christ died to set us free from the bondage of sin and showed us the way to live life, the way to blessing that you always intended for humans to live in. And we can join you in, in creating a good earth. Thank you for your commandments that are not grievous, but are um, blessings to teach us the way to life. And thank you for living in a time where we are open, we're exposed to teaching to help us understand um, things that have changed in history that have destroyed what you came to give your life for and to establish and help us, Lord, to own your story and to own your gospel personally and to give our lives to it. And I pray that the words that were spoken this morning could be a help. And if there's anything that was distracting from the truth or wrong, that you would, um, that you would pluck it away. And with Jesus, we pray that your kingdom could come and your will could be done on earth as it is in heaven. And first of all, in us, in Jesus' name, amen. Anyone have any comments or corrections? I just want to say, you know, I thought you did a really good job of uh, organizing these thoughts. I'm really blessed by it. Uh, just the two thoughts that really hit me is how Christianity has moved from focusing on ideas rather than behavior. And I think that's important to be aware of yeah. over and over and over. Like, it's just so easy to get down that line because of every book and all the influences around us. Um, and the other one is obedience precedes understanding. Yeah. And I, I think that is, I've had lots of conversations with people and they don't want to do something Jesus says, refuses to do it, do it because they say we don't understand. Mm -hmm. And there 
isn't this there isn't this willingness to obey the king if he tells us to do something before you understand. And, and a lot of times they never get to understanding, right. and they never get to obedience. Right. Like and they and they stop and they end up walking away or doing whatever. Um, it's easy to see that on someone else when you're working with them. Where have I? Where do I yeah. do that? Is my question. And I think we need to be the more we can. Um, be aware of that, I think that we'll be more and more willing to obey and actually come to understanding. Mm -hmm. It's nice to understand. Yeah. But if we recognize that the path to that sometimes is walking in obedience and understanding comes, so hopefully we'll be more willing to be obedient. Yeah. And we have to we have to be willing to take that first step and get that cycle spinning. Someone compelled me to have a tattoo. I would maybe select obedience precedes <laughs> understanding. <laughs> We'll make you roll up your sleeve next time you come. <laughs> that, that is just really important to me for my own journey, and I, I, still need, I still keep running into that. Different time, God just says forgive. Don't get bitter. And it's like, God, this person, that was not right what they did. And it's after I just choose, I'm going to let it go. Then I realize I was thinking about it wrong, or, or it's going to be okay, <laughs> whatever it is. There's a lot of ways I have a lot to grow in that still. You said a lot of really powerful things, but the one thing that stuck out is on the fruit slide, it said the disposal of disobedience by clever explanation. Yeah. And uh, that's just, you see that everywhere, even in our own, own lives. When we yeah. do something wrong, we have these clever ways to make it as if we're doing, as if we're okay, rationalizing or whatever. Yeah. Well, that was just, I, I thought, an excellent summary. You kind of embarrassed me here. I hope people don't think this is a paid advertisement, but uh, you're very kind. Uh, you know, it is too bad that uh, Bishop Hosius, who you uh, quoted up there, that he's not this real famous guy in history. He should be. To, to me, he exercised such incredible wisdom. You know, just don't ask these questions about things we don't understand. And if some fool does ask them, you don't have to answer it. You know, yeah. Just leave it alone. And if people had followed that, oh, it would have saved so much division and persecution and turmoil. But yeah, everyone ignored it. It's like, no, no, we got to get this, this stuff settled. And, and of course, once they thought they got one settled, then next, you know, a few years later, it was another question. Right. Then it was another one. And it just it kept going and going. Yeah. Yeah, the one. The one I was reading about was actually about whether or not to celebrate Easter. And that was the one where they were all accusing each other and fighting, and he had to finally blow the whistle. Constantine had to blow the whistle on it and say, makes sense. Yeah, and, and I'm, uh, I, I make a recommendation to your books on free will. Nobody's forcing me, or I'm not going to get excommunicated if I don't. I think, though, it is a tremendous, I'm thankful, like I said, this is a testimony. I'm thankful that God shed that light on my path in the last 10, 12 years, um, really helped me and guided me through some, some difficult things. I think it's, a, it's, a, I think it's foolhardy not to make use, use of the resource that God has, has given us there. Are you sure you weren't predestined? <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to eat? <laughs> Click here to watch Mike's message. <laughs>